I'd invite you to open your Bibles up to uh, the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can open that up. And then while you're opening there, I just, uh, has anybody in this room ever been misrepresented before? <laughs> misrepresented. And think, oh, I'm sure you know what that is like. You've had that experience. Uh, every, anybody ever been taken out of context before? Oh, yes. I've said things, and then people just heard that one thing that I said and divorced it from everything else that it was connected to, and then made all sorts of assumptions about me. Parents, like, have you ever had your kids tell you words back to you that came out of your mouth in order to speak against what you're saying, right? Like, that you've, you've experienced, right? They say, but you said before, like five weeks ago, that I could do this. Yeah, I did say that in that context at that time, right? So no one, none of us likes to be misrepresented. None of us likes to be misunderstood. So if that's true of us, how much more is that true of God? Right, especially when the whole point of him communicating to us, him giving us his word, his word is to us his revelation of himself. What that means is that he is, the whole point of him communicating is that he would be understood. And so when he communicates to us that he would be understood, and then we go and misrepresent him and misunderstand him, right, then we get into a situation that creates some trouble. So, Today we're continuing a series called How to Read the Bible. We're asking questions like how to engage Scripture in the way that God intended us to engage with it. How to, uh, how to read Scripture and interact with God through our reading of Scripture. How to understand what it is that God is trying to say to us. And in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, this is what it says. I want to read this verse because this verse casts a vision for how we interpret every scripture, how we interpret every scripture that we read, 2 Timothy 2, 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Right, so there's a key behavior that the Apostle Paul is encouraging a young preacher, Timothy is a young preacher when he's receiving this instruction, He's encouraging this young preacher to work hard at this thing called handling the word of truth. Right? The teaching of God's word is a sacred responsibility. That's what uh, um, Paul is emphasizing here to Timothy. Actually, in fact, the book of James says that uh, not many of you should desire to be teachers, my brothers, because we know that those of you who teach will be held to a higher standard, will be judged more strictly. That's what it says. And so here's what else Paul says to Timothy. He says, do your best, right? He says, I want you to make sure that you do your best. So, so this implies three things. Number one, there is a temptation to laziness in how we interact with Scripture, right? There is an, a, a kind of inclination inside of us to maybe not do our best and not give it our all, and we need to overcome that. Uh, this also implies that, like, you know, your best, Timothy, might not be the same best as other people. You know, the, the, the best is not going to be all the same. And so this means, thirdly, that, that God is gracious to those who are giving an effort to do their best. Okay? And then notice two words that Paul uses to describe uh, Timothy's kind of process of Bible interpreting. He says, to present yourself to one, or to present yourself to God as one 
approved. Like that this is the goal, that we might handle God's word rightly and that might, God might say of how we handle the word that you have done it well, that you've done it rightly, right? And then to avoid being ashamed before God because you mishandled the word. Uh, the implication is that there are some teachers that God actually disapproves of how they interpret the Bible because they either don't give an effort or they mishandle it in some way. Now, why am I giving you all of this? Because I believe, I actually believe this in the core of my being, that with a little training, interpreting the Bible faithfully is not difficult 98% of the time. I actually believe that, like in, in all that I am, like that, that if you are, you, you just have a little bit of training, you can actually rightly interpret scripture and rightly handle it. So this morning, we are going to do a bit of that training. So what I mean, I want to just clarify what I mean by training. Today's going to be a little bit of an unusual day. Typically what you will see is that we will put a passage of scripture up here on the screen. We will work through that passage together. We'll figure out all of the implications of that passage together. Today what we're going to do is, is we're actually, I'm going to give you tools. It is my goal to give you tools because one of my tasks is that I have to equip the body of believers. That's the, that's the job description that is given to me. I am called to be an equipper of God's people, which means that I want to give you tools, not just so that I can rightly handle the word, but so that you can rightly handle the word as well. So uh, this is the way we're going to do this. We are going to look at five common errors to avoid as we interact with scripture, and then we're going to end with a uh, very practical tool. So my assumption, and now it's, it's important that we start with assumptions here. I am working off of a base assumption that we are kind of all on the same page about one thing. Now, if you are coming in this morning and you're not on the same page with me about the things that we say, I want to encourage you to, if you can go to our website, the last four or five weeks of, uh, of preaching that we've done here, we've kind of really hit onto this assumption. This is my assumption that the Bible is a book for us to be submitted to, right? It is a book that has authority, right? I'm not going to try to make that case for you today uh, because I've, I've worked to make that case. Don and I have worked to make that case over the last few weeks, right? So uh, you've heard me say something like this before. Whatever you give, you give your attention to has permission to shape you. Whatever thing you give your attention to has permission to shape you. We give our attention to scripture because we're saying, okay, we need to be shaped by something that is outside of us. So, so last week, we looked at four ways that we should expect the Bible to change us, that it should change our worldview, that it should change our affections, that it should change our thoughts, that it should change our actions. In all of its commands, everything that Jesus commands his followers to do, like everything that, that Scripture commands, it is to be followed and obeyed and applied to our lives. And like, so if you've not been with us, and you're not kind of there regarding Scripture as your highest authority, then I want to yeah, just encourage you go to go look at our website to go back because today's sermon is working off the assumption that Scripture is authoritative in all that it says. So here are five common errors in Bible interpretation. The first error is this. It is missing the intent of the authors, right? So, so if this is if if I'm trying to equip you with tools, there are there are kind of gifts, uh, tools that I want to give to you. I want you to hold on to them. Uh, 
I might not typically say, hey, it's really, really important that you take notes today, but if you want to hold on to the things that are said, I would say it's probably pretty important to take notes for what that's worth. So uh, the, the first error is missing the intent of the authors. We live in kind of a very interesting time historically. We're talking about this idea of interpretation. Uh, interpreting something is kind of just determining its meaning, right? So if you ask our cultural authorities today how you determine the meaning of something, that question has actually never been harder to answer than it is today. Because meaning used to exist in something outside of me. It used to be an objective thing that could be discovered. There were objective tools and standards by which you could determine the meaning of something. But we've now moved to a time in which our culture insists that meaning primarily exists inside of us. That meaning is found and discovered inside of us. So like a hundred years ago, we used to ask when we were reading anything, but maybe even just the Bible, we used to ask, what did the author mean when he wrote these words? Like, what did he intend to communicate? What message was he giving to his original audience? And how would they have understood it and received it? And today we ask the question, what do the words of the author mean to me? Right? How can these words affirm thoughts that I've already had? How can I change or ignore the parts that I don't want to deal with? How can I make this text important by making it say what I want it to say? Now, for what it's worth, humans have been doing the second one throughout history. Like all the time, humanity has been going to the Bible and making it say what it wants, uh, what we want it to say to justify us in our actions. But the difference is today, that is a celebrated way of interpreting Scripture. Right, so this is not how we handle Scripture. Second Peter 1, verses 20 to 21 says this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What Peter is doing right here is he has been developing an argument for the things that Christ has said and the things that he has accomplished. And he says, we are witnesses of it and we confirm that, pro that the prophets have proven true. And now he's talking about words that have been written down through history to talk about Christ and the reality of Christ's coming. And he says, a no scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Right? Like, this does not come from within people. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So every passage of scripture, what we understand, has two authors. Right? There's the human author who put it on the page, and there's the divine author, God himself, ensuring that his words were the words that ended up on the page. And sometimes, so for what it's worth, the reason I make this note about two authors is because the human authors wrote things on the page that they didn't know the exact meaning of those words or how they would be fulfilled, but they knew that God wanted to put them on the page, and then God showed later how he was going to fulfill the words, right? So every, everything that's written down in Scripture has two authors. It has the human author, and it has the divine author. And our task in Bible reading is kind of to first order, listen to the meaning of the authors, Right? What did the authors intend to say when they wrote these things? We need to remain firm in that conviction for this reason. Because scripture cannot mean more than what the original authors intended it to mean. It cannot mean more than what the original authors intended it to mean. So practically, this means that we pay attention to things like genre. 
So as you look through your Bible, the Bible is written in several different genres. You have narrative, you have poetry, you have prophecy, right? Hebrew, Hebrew poetry is full of images intended to convey meaning. So uh, in the book of Song of Solomon, you hear this uh, phrase, which is fun. Your nose, this is a, a man speaking to the woman that he loves. He says, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus, right? The author's intent here is not to call the nose of his loved one a tower, right? We get that. But if you look at the whole poem, what what he's doing is he's trying to use very creative language to speak of the beauty of the one that he loves, right? So somehow this is kind of like meant to reinforce the beauty of this woman. So genre genre helps us in, in kind of understanding intent. It also means that we like, we don't always read literally. Sometimes we read literarily. We, we read what the intent of the author was, right? So uh, narrative, it tells us stories about things that happened. What that means is that narrative is descriptive. It is not necessarily prescriptive. I mean, narrative tells us, kind of gives us the order of things. It describes what happens, but his goal is not necessarily to tell everyone who reads the story after that, you must do things this way. Right, so, so you get to legalism very fast if you begin handling things in that way. Uh, so, so there are times where we just have to pay attention to what the intent of the author is. So the, the antidote to this kind of first mistake is this, that we would seek to understand Scripture on its own terms instead of coming to Scripture with our own terms and making it conform. Right, uh, the second kind of common error in Bible reading is this, Skipping the context. So we already agree. No one likes being taken out of context. Nobody wants to be misrepresented, right? This is, for what it's worth, the number one way of twisting someone's words. All you have to do is kind of look at political rhetoric right now and the way people interact and they frame their political opponents and they always just kind of take that one phrase that drives them crazy and put it out there for everyone to hear without considering the words that surround that one phrase, right? So... You get, uh, I'm going to give you two acronyms this morning. This is the first acronym that you get. This one is HAM. So uh, we're going to put some HAM in the oven and try to understand what's going on here. HAM, the first uh, piece of this is H, history. What was happening when this was written? Right, this is, we're, we're understanding the pieces of context, or we're trying to get, and when this thing was written down, what time period what was, was it written in? Was this written about Israel in the Old Testament, or was this written for Christians in the New Testament? Uh, what issues and events have just occurred around the time that this was written? We're, uh, the, our men's Bible study, we're reading, uh, studying together the book of Nehemiah, and historical context is really important to try to understand the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is coming to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, why had Jerusalem fallen? That's a pretty important thing to understand. What caused Nehemiah to want to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? All of this stuff, all the context help us to understand God's heart for why he would even put this in scripture. Okay, so that's history. The A is area. What defined the culture where this was written? So 
uh, this geography goes into this for what it's worth? Are there uh, behaviors to you that don't make sense as you read? You want to ask questions like who, who is in charge of this land or this domain? What political rulers exist at this time? Uh, what geographical details are included here that might influence the people or the writers to act or think in a certain way? Uh, so for what it's worth, like we see uh, Paul. Uh, in the book of Acts, at, at one point he is in jail and he appeals to his Roman citizenship. Well, if we understand the significance of Rome and the authority of Caesar, uh, the, you know, that's an aspect of the area that Paul lives in that would help us to understand why he appeals to his Roman citizenship. Another one, Paul and Barnabas, they heal a man lame from birth. In Acts 14, 11 and 12, this is what it says. It says, when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done... They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, if you know something about this region, you know that they are worshiping the, uh, the Greek polytheon, all of the gods of the Greeks. And so when they look at Barnabas and Paul and they see them perform miracles, the only connection they have to people who perform miracles is that they're gods who have come down to earth, right? So, uh, so this is area. This help us, helps us to understand kind of the cultural context. And then finally, M is mindset. And mindset focuses on the author's goals. Like how does the book start? What words come before and after the passage that I am reading right now? What kind of response is the author hoping that his readers will make? Right, so if you read the Gospel of John, gospel, the Gospel of John tells us at the very end what his uh, kind of aimed for response is, what his goal is. He says, these things are written down so that you may believe. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he starts telling us his purpose at the very beginning. He wants to get a detailed eyewitness account of things that happened with Jesus so that there can be record kept of these things. Uh, in the uh, letters of Paul, you have tools of discipleship that are being used. In the Psalms, you have laments and praise, and judgment, and remembrance, and it depends on what psalm you pick, uh, which one you look to, that helps you to figure out what the purpose of that particular psalm is. And the prophets, you have uh, people who ad address God's people directly, and they confront them, and then they also provide promises, right? So, so all of these have different aims. The authors are aiming to do different things. So the antidote to this uh, this mistake is this. To get, like, this is one antidote. It's not the antidote, but, like, get a study Bible, right? Because I may have listed off a number of things for you to wonder, like, do I, like, can I know that? Do I need to know this, right? This is really helpful if you have a study Bible as you're reading something and you have a question. Uh, nine times out of ten, you look in your study Bible and there's an answer to that question. It helps you to understand something about the context or the time frame that this was written in, and that uh, we, so we actually like have the benefit of hundreds of years of written insight from devoted followers of Jesus, and as a result, like we should use that. So, uh, so the third piece of this, uh, misapplying Old Testament promises. So every um, prosperity preacher, every word of faith preacher, this is their common error their mistake. Uh, 
because uh, you look in the Old Testament and there are a number of promises made about the wealth of Old Testament Israelites, about how their land is going to be expanded and protected and restored. So they, uh, and you'll hear preachers say something, they'll hold their Bible up and they'll say something like, every promise in this book is yours. Except that's not true, <laughs> right? They'll say things like, God will make your life better and make you, uh, if you just believe him, right? If you just do the things that he says without kind of taking apart what that means. And so if you take Old Testament promises and imply that this is how God responds to all of his people throughout all of history, then you have made an error. So the first thing to consider is that like every book, every promise inside of this book is not mine to own personally for me myself a good example of this is second chronicles seven fourteen. It says if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then i will hear from heaven and i will forgive their sin and heal their land this is a promise that god gives to the Jewish people, the people of Israel, if they would repent and give him first place in their lives. This is not a promise that the United States would live forever and be the dominating force on the planet until Jesus returns. Right? It does show us, so, so th that's to say what it's not. Now, once we clear out what it's not, let's then understand the benefit that we can get from it. Right? Because it does show us God's heart and his desire to extend blessing to repentant and prayerful people. Right? But Jesus, like, Jesus does not make promises of ease and comfort to his followers. Right? In the New Testament, God's heart is displayed to us and extending the blessings and promises of the coming kingdom, the future kingdom. Right? So, uh, so let's review. To whom are the Old Testament laws and promises about land and prosperity directed specifically? The nation of Israel, right? Okay. Uh, are you the nation of Israel? Good. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, so uh, for what it's worth, if you are Jewish today, are you the nation of Israel that these promises were made to? Also no. Also no. Okay. Good. Uh, so... Uh, just to give you an illustration. If you write my brother a check, can I deposit that check into my bank account? I cannot deposit that check into my bank account, right? So there are many illustrations of this from Old Testament promises that are made specifically for the nation of Israel. They are not promises made to us as Christians, but they do reveal to us God's heart. So the antidote to this is this. Number one, to get clear-headed on the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then to number two, realize that in every Old Testament promise, we look for the heart of God, the values of God, the general truths that are being displayed. Right, so, so we don't, like, it, the Old Testament is incredibly valuable to us, and sometimes you'll hear preachers say we, we don't even need the Old Testament anymore. That is not true, but we do follow Old Testament laws because they were fulfilled, or we don't follow Old Testament laws, they were fulfilled in Jesus. We value it because every page and every story that it tells tells us something more about the heart and mind of God. Right? It emphasizes God's justice and his mercy, his patience and his kindness uh, to people who were constantly turning their backs on him time and time again. Right? So the fourth, uh, fourth common error 
is this. Failing to die to my own agenda. Right, so as we come to Scripture, it requires us to be aware of two things. It requires us to be aware, yes, of what the words on the page say, but it also requires us to be aware of what we're bringing to it. Right? We have to be very self-aware as we engage in this process. If we come to Scripture trying to get it to agree with and reinforce our perspectives, then we've already lost the battle. Right? Um, so, like, I've seen people do this before. They come with a particular perspective. And so what they do is they find uh, one verse here and one verse here and one verse here that they've kind of cherry-picked from around Scripture. And if you just look at those verses by themselves, they do reinforce the person's perspective. But they're not considering the totality of Scripture. They're just considering the particular verses that happen to align with their perspective. So an example of this, 1 John 4.16 says this, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I have heard people use this verse as a way of saying we shouldn't hold people accountable. We should always be willing to give affirmation of whatever a person is experiencing because that's what it means to love. That we should always celebrate love anywhere and everywhere we see it as it is defined by the people. Now, for what it's worth, this truth presented to us in 1 John is a compelling truth about God. But instead of trying to understand what the author means and what he is saying when he says God is love and how he defines the word love, what quality of love God's love is, we import our definition of love onto the Bible and say God must agree with me. So if we come to Scripture and impose our agenda upon it, rather than having God's agenda imposed on us, we will miss the power of what Scripture is trying to accomplish. So we've all heard perspectives that our biblical ideas are too out-of-date and old-fashioned when the church, for 99% of the church for the last 1,900 years, happens to have agreed with us on these things, right? So Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus, uh, just to clarify the example, he answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning was made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I get that legitimate harm and evil has been done in the name of Jesus to those who identify as gay. That physical violence, talking down to, slandering, all of that stuff has taken place in the name of Jesus, and it is unjustifiable. It is not ever appropriate for anybody who calls himself a Christian to respond to another person made in the image of God in that way. I want to be the kind of person who tries to listen to and understand a person who claims that kind of identity, right? I want to recognize the image of God in that person. But I cannot come to Scripture asking Scripture to affirm that God is cool with men marrying men and sleeping with men or women marrying women and sleeping with women. Like the Bible does not permit me to find that. The only way I do it is by ignoring aspects of what Scripture says to make it conform to my perspective. 
And so that is an example of taking my own agenda and importing it upon Scripture. This kind of stuff has been done throughout history to, to also, for what it's worth, justify violence against unbelievers, justify slavery, and other things that should just be out of bounds for Jesus' followers. So Pastor Don, uh, he tells his conversion story or aspects of his conversion story often. One thing that he says that I will never forget that I will keep holding on to is that when he came to Jesus and he learned what it meant for him to submit to God, he had to say, you are God, I am not. When you and I disagree, you win. So the antidote is submit your ideas, your values, and your behaviors to all of God's words not just the parts that you like. Okay, final error. Final error, number five, ignoring the Holy Spirit. John 16, verses 13 through 15 says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit was given to us, the church, to help us understand God's word and God's will for us. When you're reading scripture, if you believe in Jesus, what we are told is like the Holy Spirit is there with you in the moment, helping you understand God's heart as you read those scriptures. Which means that your interaction with Scripture is not a static experience, but it is a dynamic experience where the God of the universe is seeking to bring to life, in your life, the fruit of the words that he has said. Right? It's not just you and your Bible, it's you and the Holy Spirit and God's Word. And as you read, he helps the gra- you grasp the parts of your life that are out of alignment with him. As you read, he shows you your need, uh, maybe like shows you an opportunity to encourage a brother or sister. As you read, he gives you words that might be good for your coworkers to hear, right? He helps you understand the ways that his word can be brought to bear on your spheres of influence. So as uh, the mistake is to ignore the Holy Spirit, the antidote is that number one, every time you read the Bible, invite the Holy Spirit to lead you as you interact with scripture. Set aside the time. Recognize that the Holy Spirit is there to meet with you and help you understand. And the second one is this. Listen to the Spirit's voice amongst your brothers and sisters, especially those who are mature. One of the realities of Bible reading and interacting with Scripture, engaging Scripture, is that God has not just given it to us as individuals. God has given Scripture to the church. Right? He has given us communities of people to surround us. Bible reading and interpretation is a practice that the church has done in conversation with one another for over 2,000 years. So if you are part of a church, and that church is committed to the authority of Scripture, and there are mature followers of Jesus in that church, then seek their counsel as you're reading. Right? If you find that you're being warned by those who are biblically faithful uh, and you've seen them be biblically faithful most of your life, uh, they're coming along and warning you, there's a high likelihood that their warning is connected to something that you need to pay attention to and that you're veering off of a path for what is true. So listen to the Spirit's voice when He speaks to you, when He meets you there in the Word, and listen to the Spirit's voice when He speaks to you through your brothers and sisters. So what? 
So I have one so what to share with us this morning. A tool to help you study. This tool is called SOAR. So I have, um, I've given us two uh, acronyms this morning. HAM and SOAR. So you can remember these by saying, pigs don't fly, but hams soar. Pigs don't fly, but hams soar. There you go. Uh, You won't forget, I promise. Uh, So SOAR. SOAR starts with this. Survey. Survey asks the question, what's the context? Right, so when I sit down, and this is what I used to do. When I, was, uh, when I was younger, when I was coming up, learning how to read the Bible, what I would do is I would take a sheet of paper, and I would uh, make four columns on that sheet of paper, and I would put S-O-A-R in each column. And then I would go, and I would sit with a passage, and I would go through each aspect, right? Uh, so first I went through the S. What is the context of the passage? What, so, so, so that's that ham piece, right? So just remember, pigs... Don't fly, but ham's sore. Remember, ham. Uh, What are the big ideas up to this point in the passage? What are the historical things that I need to be aware of? Uh, So that gives me the general lay of the land as I approach the specific text that I'm going to. Then with O, I observe. What does it say? What are the basic ideas that are being communicated here? What's happening to the characters in the story? These are kind of the, kind of the highest level observations that you can make about the text. What, just like what is going on? What are the details? What happened? And then what happened next? What did they say? Um, then after that, you analyze. You ask the question, what does it mean? What does this thing mean? What words do I not understand or what words do I need to look up? What additional background would help me or help me figure out and understand particular words. What did these words mean to the original audience? How was the author accomplishing his goal with the original audience? We look at all of that when we analyze the passage and determine what it means, and then finally, we respond. So we ask the question, how should I or we change when we approach this passage? Remember last week we looked at there were four changes we would make, that God would change our worldview, the way that we think, that God would change our affections, uh, our heart, the things that we love, that God would change our knowledge or kind of just the bits of information that we know he wants to change those and that he would change our actions, the things that we do. How should we change? So, like I said, before I went to seminary, like, I, I would, like one to two years, this is how I would read scripture. I would go S-O-A-R and just like work my way through. And then uh, by God's grace, as I did that, like it becomes second nature. So that as you interact with scripture, you just, once you've kind of got the pattern down over time, you begin to just read things this way, right? You, you survey and you observe and you analyze and you respond. So, um, okay. That's, that's it for today. That's the, the kind of the big idea. I just want to revisit the why this morning. As your pastor, I have a job. Ephesians chapter 4 says that uh, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, they were given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what it says. My job is to equip the saints, to equip you for the work of the ministry, which means that when I stand before Jesus one day, one of the things that I'm going to have to answer for is, did I build a people who are reliant upon me and my understanding of Scripture? Did I build a people who attended church on Sunday just to get fed? Or did I or did we as elders of this church 
build a people who knew how to handle the word? Did we, people, did we build a people who could interact with the word and share it with others? Did we build a people who were seeking to understand and respond to God on his terms? Church, the word is not just for me to give to you. The word is for us to engage and handle because the work of the ministry belongs to every one of us. Would you pray with me, please?